morning. Welcome. So glad to be here with you. If we haven't met, my name is Dave, and we are in the middle of the sermon series where we're examining the names and the titles of Jesus, both that he is given and that he chooses. And our hope is that as we stare at these names of Jesus, we find out something about him and also something about the invitation that he is making to each of us right now, right here in this time, in this moment, in this place. My daughter turned 14 this week. <clears throat> How did that happen? Um, and I was reflecting this week. Uh, and if I get emotional, I don't care. <laughs> there was this moment about... I don't know, eight years ago, nine years ago, uh, we had a bunch of volunteers come over to the house for a leader dinner. And it was right in the middle of that toddler, post-toddler, early elementary, where they have more energy than the sun. And they were just, uh, you know, playing. And uh, I came home and we had a big dinner with lots of people coming over to our house. Our house isn't that big. I didn't know what to do. We had a whole lot of food. It's kind of stressful to host that many people. And I was trying to like get all the food ready. And I come home and I got these bags of groceries we're going to cook and there's lots to do. And uh, I came into the house and my children, who are gifts from the Lord above, <laughs> had decided to hold a Nerf war in our living room and had transformed our immaculately clean living room into this war zone with forts and firing and Nerf bullets were everywhere. On top of the chandelier, we don't have a chandelier, a lamp, it's a lamp. There was stuff everywhere and I just thought, oh no, like, oh man, now we have to clean up. And I just got frustrated in that moment, you know, just frustrated. Like we got to clean this up and we got to put away the blankets and you know, what, 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 what is that in front of the garage doing in the living room? We got to clean everything up and there's a place for everything. Everything has a place and you can put it away and put it there and put it there and put it there. And uh, it, we were kind of late and, and the first guests show up and they're my friends, Jeremy and Karen. And they walk in and I'm still cleaning up Nerf bullets and stuff's everywhere. And I'm like, I'm so sorry about the mess. It's my kids and the toys and I'm apologetic. And Jeremy and Karen, they'd been serving with me for a number of years. They had been struggling with infertility for six years. And Jeremy teared up and he looked at me and he goes, I long for the day when we have a mess in our house. And it just hit me. I missed it. I missed it. I was so busy in the rigmarole of life and the tensions that I had missed. I had missed it. It was right in front of my face. And I missed it. You ever have those moments, those epiphanies? In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is writing his gospel to us, to anyone who reads it. And he's saying... There's a way to live your life in which you miss it. You just miss it. And please don't. Please don't miss what's right in front of you. And for Matthew, that source of life is Jesus himself. And he's trying to get us to see this reality that we can live our lives in a way in which we miss it. 
And Matthew's trying to get us not to. That's what this morning is about. These, These moments of epiphany, these moments of subtle revelation from God himself breaking into the world to show us, hey, don't miss it, child, don't miss it. We're going to look at this moment. It's in the book of Matthew. We've looked now at John, at the beginning of John with the word. We've looked at the whole gospels. Last week, we talked about how Jesus refers to himself as the son of man more than 80 different times sprinkled throughout all the gospels. Today, we're going to look at Matthew. Now, we're going to start at the end of the first part, the first section of Matthew. He's there, and there's these three sections in the first movement of Matthew, Matthew 1 to 9. The first section is like this intro. Then it goes into this giant teaching of Jesus. Sometimes it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And then in chapters 8 and 9, it's just story after story after story after story after story where Matthew puts in all these stories of healing. And we're going to go right at the end, right there, right at the end of, of, of that first block. But then, here's what we're going to do. It's going to be fun. I'm going to tell you where we're going to go. We're going to go back in time. We're going to go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 1. And then we're going to show you how in the middle of these books, at the end of that first clump, the intro and the end of this, 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 this final clump in the, the end of, of Matthew 8 and 9, there's these moments where Matthew repeats the same phrase. It's this huge, he's trying to get us to pay attention to these things because Matthew has constructed his gospel in these brilliant, brilliant literary ways. And the only thing we need To understand it is just to read it and read it well. Read it thoughtfully. That's what we need to do. So let's go to that moment at the end of Matthew chapter 8. But before we do, or end end of Matthew chapter 9. Before we do, I kind of want to show where we are in this story. Matthew starts with this intro. And then he goes into the Sermon on the Mount. These incredible teachings of Jesus, which again continue to confront and comfort and confound and shape humans for centuries Uh, And then in Matthew uh, 8 and 9, he recounts, I count 12 different vignette stories of people who are in crisis, who come to Jesus, and Jesus meets them, sees them, interacts with them, and they are transformed forever. And it's one after the other after other, right? This is what Matthew's showing us. There's this uh, man with leprosy, and he's healed. And then there's a centurion who has a servant who is really hurt and is going to die. And, and Jesus interacts with that guy. And then Peter's mother-in-law. And Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. No word if Peter was happy about that. The point is, <laughs> she's healed. <laughs> then it says in that town, many were sick. That was a mother-in-law joke. That's, yeah. <laughs> Uh, many are sick, uh, and then they come to Jesus. And then the disciples are in this boat, and there's this huge storm, and they're scared. Jesus calms the storm. And then there's these two guys in Gerasene who are demon-possessed. Jesus heals them. There's a paralyzed man on the mat. Jesus heals him. There's Levi, the tax collector, who Jesus calls, and he's a social pariah, and Jesus calls him to be one of his followers. There's a woman who's bleeding for 12 years. Um, she's actually not even Jewish. She's Syrophen, uh, She's from, from another area. And, um, and so she's, she's there. And then Jairus, who's a Jewish leader, his daughter is there. Um, and, and she's sick. Actually, she's dead. And um, Jesus comes and he heals her. He actually raises her back to life. And, so there, and, then, and then at the end of Matthew 9, there's these two little vignettes. So you see what's going on here. There's this march. There's this cadence. Matthew was showing a story after story of person in crisis who comes to Jesus um, and, and they got no hope. I mean, they got no other options, right? Really? Yeah, that's, that's it. And Jesus interacts with them in a way that transforms them entirely. And then at the end of Matthew chapter 9, we have these two little stories. We're going to read them together. They're there in Matthew 9. You can read them in your Bible. You can follow along. Um, and there they are. 
and the end of chapter 9. Uh, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, See that no one knows about this. But they went out and spread the news all about him all over the region. Nice listening, gentlemen. But while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the crowd was amazed. And they said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is what's happening in the end of Matthew. Now, as we get into this, I want to call attention to that little title that these blind men call Jesus by. It shows up here, and it's really important. They say, Son of David, have mercy on us. Now, you might have heard of Jesus referred to as the Son of God, or even like we talked about last week, the Son of Man. But the Son of David, this is, this is why I'm preaching this week. David, what's that mean? That doesn't, that, David Kim's over at South Hills, so it's an all-David show. <laughs> this is all David all the time. Um, we have to explain what's going on here. Now, this is a little bit like, now Matthew is very Jewish, and he's writing to a Jewish audience. And so when he throws these things in, it's a little bit like saying the son of Loki, or the son of uh, Frodo, or the son of Han Solo. Now, when I say those words, they bring back the entire story. And if you don't know the story, you're a little bit lost. Does that make sense? And so what he's doing is he's pulling, Matthew is pulling back into the narrative something that his Jewish listeners would have understood immediately. David was the most famous king in all of Israel's history. And there was this moment where David, and David's called a man after God's own heart. He wrote all these psalms. He was Israel's greatest king. And in his story, there's a couple of things that are super important about David's story. And one of them is in 2 Samuel 7, God comes and makes a covenant, which is like a binding formal promise. It's bigger than a Verizon contract. And it's, it's like marriage meets a legal contract. It's a covenant. And these covenants, are they're, they're fairly rare, but they're very important. There's five or six of them throughout the Old Testament, depending if you count God's covenant with Adam. There's one with Noah, one with uh, Abraham. There's one with Moses. There's one with David, and then there's a new one from Christ in his blood. That's why we take communion. Remember those words that we say, this is the new covenant that runs. And a covenant is God saying, this is what I'm doing with you. This is what I'm doing through you. This is what I'm doing in the world. And actually, we could do a whole sermon series on the covenants that God makes, and each one would be rich. And we could spend week after week exploring the beauty of God's promises and covenants. But we don't have time. Let me just show you the Davidic covenant. This is what... God comes to David. David wants to build um, a house, a temple for, for Yahweh, for his God. He says, you deserve it. And God is honored by this. And he comes to David and says, let me tell you, um, there's something I want to do. You want to do something for me, but let me tell you what I want you. I want, what, I want to tell you what I want to do for you. And because what I want to do with you and through you is actually so big, it's going to change the entire world. This is the words of God himself to David. The Lord declares... 
to you, that's to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So one of my offspring is going to be a king, but then it goes on. No ordinary king. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever, David. Before me, your throne will be established forever. So this is both a person, because it says flesh and blood, right? But then it's not really, how can it be a person? Because his kingdom is going to go on forever. This everlasting kingdom. And so this term, son of David, came to be known in the Jewish thought and in the Old Testament and through the scribes and through the prophets as the son of David, there was this term here, and that was the Messiah that would come. His kingdom would last forever, but he would somehow be linked and tied to David. He would be from his lineage. And this son of David would be a king that would reign forever. His throne would be established forever. No other empire could threaten it, and it would never be loosened. And he would reign forever, this king, and his throne would be there. And somehow God would be like a father to this king, and this, this king would be like a son, would be a son? This is, what's going on here? What is going on? And this term I, came to be known as the Messiah, the anointed one, the true king that would come to reign. Now next week, we're going to look at another title of Jesus, the Christ. And we're going to talk all about this. This is kind of like part one, um, and next week's part two, so come back. It's going to be amazing. Um, but what's going on here? Now, here's the crazy thing about this. So here, okay, this king, this anointed king that is linked with God, he's going to be like a son to God who will be his father and his throne will last forever. This is the promise made to David. And so people are like, what's going on? Now, I want to show you how Matthew starts his gospel in Matthew 1.1 because it is not subtle. Here is how Matthew starts the very opening words of his gospel. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. Is there any ambiguity in that? Matthew is saying, this story is about Jesus, who is the Messiah, who is the son of David, the one talked about in 2 Samuel 7, the one God promised. This is that story. Let me show you how that happened, be prepared to have your mind blown. This is Matthew saying the story. This is what it is. And then you know the rest of the story, it keeps going. Matthew keeps beating this drum. He provides a genealogy to show how Joseph actually is in David's lineage. And then the angel comes and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And then Jesus is born in Bethlehem, which is David's city where he grew up. And so it's very clear. And then remember with the angels, they show up tonight, tonight in the city of David, a child has been born, a savior, right? This, this is not hidden, okay? This is Matthew saying, this story is about Jesus and he's the Messiah, he's the son of David. And then at the end of these two sections, Matthew puts the same phrase and he puts the same sentence there. And this, at the end of uh, uh, chapter 4 and the end of chapter 9, right in the end of these sections, this is the same thing that Matthew repeats it verbatim here. And this is what it says. Jesus went through all of Galilee, or 
in, uh, in, in Matthew 9, all the towns and villages, so there's one tiny difference there, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Matthew's trying to say again and again, it's Jesus is doing this. He's proclaiming, he's preaching this good news about the kingdom of God. He is teaching in the synagogues about who God is and, and all these things, opening the scriptures, and he's healing every disease and sickness. It's pretty clear here that Matthew is trying to get us to see Jesus is the son of David. This is where the story is. Jesus is the Messiah. This is not hidden. This is not the born identity where it's like there's a guy who shows up and we're like, oh, who is it? Who is he? And then the rest of the movie is like, will he discover his true identity? Who is he? Where did he come from? This is exciting. And then there's four movies. <laughs> this is not a spy novel. This is not a mystery, right? This is not that kind of story. As readers, when we enter into the story, we're not like, well, who is this? There's not dramatic tension about Jesus' identity. Where did he come from? Does he have power? This is not that. This is more like Home Alone. The audience knows that something has happened that the characters do not. And the only question is, when? Will they realize it? And which characters will realize it? That's the only question in Home Alone. The question is, where? And then, will they realize it? Kevin! That's the question. This is the question. Who will see? Who will see that Jesus is actually the king, the Messiah, the son of David? So this title is given, and then we're starting to ask the question, like, how, who's going to see? Who's going to notice? Now, here's what's fascinating, is Matthew then begins to pummel us. I mean, if we pay attention, this theme is just grounded home. In Matthew 9, and then in Matthew 15, and then in Matthew 20, three times people come up and say the exact same phrase, son of David, have mercy on me. Same phrase. They're tying back. Now, here's what's fascinating is who calls this out? Who sees Jesus as the son of David? Because when you say that, son of David, you're saying, I see you, Jesus, as this promised king. I know that that is who you are. And I have a crisis, a problem, and only you, the Messiah, can save it, can, can save me. So what's going on here? Who are the people who proclaim, son of David, have mercy on me? And Matthew is almost comical here. It's a blind, uh, some blind men, a foreign woman, and then some blind men. The people who see Jesus most clearly are blind. It's almost funny, right? It's almost comical. It's a foreign woman who's not even a Jewish person. And yet she gets the story more than the Jewish people. This is incredible. And look how these people interact with Jesus. Look who sees and who doesn't. This is the reaction at the end of nine, of the section we just read. There's one group. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. Do these people get it? Do they see who Jesus is? I would say, yeah. They respond with desperation and with hope. They call him by this title, Saying, I, and then when Jesus says, hey, do, you know, hey, do you believe I can do this? What's their response? Yeah, that's why we're here. <laughs> Just so you're clear, that wasn't clear. Now, then the second group is the crowd. 
And what do they say? The crowd's amazed. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And they're right. What they're saying is, like, in our stories, as Jewish people, God has sometimes, like, clouded people's eyes. They can't see, and then they can see later. But never has somebody not been able to see and have their sight restored like this. This is brand new. This is category destroying. What is going on? Who is this Christ? This is nuts. And then there's the third group, the Pharisees. And look what they say. It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Do they see? Do the religious leaders, the Pharisees, do they see Jesus clearly? No, they do not. They don't. So you got these groups and they're responding. And Matthew's trying to say something to us. He's trying to get us as readers to identify and see, like, who, who are we? What are we like? Are we like the blind people who see Jesus for who he is and then in desperation come with the entirety of our brokenness in our lives and say, Jesus, I know that you can fix this. Are we like the crowds? They're just like, man, that was crazy. And then just kind of stand there. Your mind's blown, but maybe you don't move, but maybe you do, but maybe you're thinking about moving. I don't know. And then there's the Pharisees who say, look, I recognize that's power, but it's Satan. It's evil. This is nuts, right? This is what Matthew was trying to get us to see. He's trying to get us to see, like, the people who see don't see. The people that should see don't see. And the people who can't see, see. I mean, this is nuts, right? And this ties back, of course, to the story of David. Again, Matthew being super Jewish, knowing all the stories about King David. You know the story of David. Saul has turned his face against God, has disobeyed God. God's like, you can't be my leader. I'm going to get a new one. And he tells his prophet Samuel, I got a new king. I want you to go and anoint him. That's a symbol of, of him being my chosen king in this world. And so Samuel's like, where should I go? And God's like, go to this family. His name's Jesse. He's got some sons. One of them's the king. And so Samuel goes there and he sees Jesse's sons. And they're like all like good looking. They're like the Olympic male swimmers. They're just gorgeous. All of them just all tall. And I don't like watching swimming with my wife. Um, <laughs> just insecure. And Samuel's like, surely one of these has got to be. It's got to be. It's got to be one of these. These guys are all gorgeous. These guys are all tall. They're strong. It's got to be one of these. And God's like, no. And Samuel's like confused. He's like, uh, do you have any other sons? And what's Jesse say? Yeah, there's one more. He's like out in the field or something. But he's like the runt. And so they go get him and bring him in. He's like forgotten. Like people don't even remember or see him. And he comes before and God says to Samuel, that's the one. The shepherd boy? Yep. And then this verse, this powerful, beautiful verse that God says and reminds Samuel and reminds us, the Lord does not look at the things that people look at, the outward appearance. The Lord looks inside, inside the heart. And then, of course, you know the story. Jesus is anointed, but then he is desperately opposed by Saul. Saul tries to kill him. He's driven from the palace. He has to go into the desert and hide for years and years. He's anointed, but he's not appointed. He's the king but not yet. 
He's the king. God's true anointed. God sees that, but the rest of the world acts as though he's not, and they try to kill him. In sense, he's a hidden, he's a hidden king. This is, again, part of Jesus' story. He's like a hidden king. Not everyone sees him, clearly. Not everyone understands that he's actually the one. And Jesus, actually, if you study the text, which is fascinating, because I kept reading this stuff, and you see in Matthew 8 and 9, every time Jesus does these miracles, sometimes right after that, there's this direct opposition from the religious leaders. Man, they hate it. And there's this opposition, and so there's this pattern in, 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 in Matthew 9 and in Matthew 15 and in Matthew 20, before and after these stories, where somebody says, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus confronts the religious leaders and says, de facto, you don't get it. You're not seeing clearly. You don't understand right before and right after every single time. For example, one of them is almost, it's, it's almost like Matthew is toying with us. Look what he says. I mean, look, right before this, in Matthew 15, look what he says. This is what Jesus says. The disciples, the, you know, he does some healing. And the disciples came to him and says, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And Jesus replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Whew. Leave them, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they will fall into a pit. And then who comes up, up after him and calls him Jesus, son of man? The blind. I mean, you see what's going on here. The blind see, and the people who should be leading can't see. Do you see what I'm saying? This is, this is what Matthew's trying to say. Don't miss this, right? Matthew's question to us is, do you see Jesus? Do you see him as the son of David, the Christ? We're going to talk about this a whole bunch next week. Do you see him? Do you see him? Do you see him? Do not miss him. Do not miss him. This is Matthew's invitation to us. This is Matthew's invitation to the world. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss for who he is. Don't miss for what he can do. That's what Matthew's invitation is. Now, as I was reflecting on this, this is hard. How do we know when we've missed Jesus, right? I mean, this is, the, this is the hard part about Matthew's challenge to us. This past week, we had a, a junior high and a high school camp here. Hundreds and hundreds of high schoolers and junior hires were here. And I got a chance to be in the room for some of it. And those students didn't miss Jesus. 77 said yes Jesus is for me, and I've never said that before, and I want to publicly affirm that. There's some drawing in our students, and they didn't miss it, and our student ministries team made sure that they did not miss it, including one of my daughter's friends that she brought, who she has been praying for. This is, this is not, this is not academic. People really see Jesus, and they really get their lives transformed. What does it mean for us to look and see Jesus well as people? I want to, this is me now, just as I process this with some folks, that's the question Matthew was asking. But as I reflected on it, just as a staff member here, one, one of the folks who's on staff and with other staff and with folks, and I asked them, and we talked through this question, 
I was drawn to two questions that I think are pretty interesting that might help us get to this point. So I'm just going to share them with you. And there's, those two, there's two questions that Jesus asked the blind men. And he asked them this question before he heals them, which is weird, which is rare. Jesus mostly just heals people, right? And then that's it. But before he heals both pairs of the blind folk, he asked them a question, and I just thought it was interesting. And I think it's, it's, it's and maybe an invitation to us. The first question that he asked them is, in Matthew 9, do you trust that I'm, I'm able to do this? Do you believe? The Greek word is pistis. Do you, do you believe, do you trust that I am the Messiah? This is, I think, the first question. I think one of the reasons we don't come to Jesus with the brokenness and the desperation of our mess is we actually don't believe that Jesus can or will help. There's this, we're, look, we're in Silicon Valley, right? We are competent people. We can solve lots of problems, but there are some problems that are so big that we can't solve. Oftentimes, as, as I've talked to people, they've said, I say I believe in God, but when it really comes down to it, I believe I'm on my own. That I'm, I'm all alone. That God actually isn't going to come to help me. That I have to do stuff on my own. And so, I did some diagnostics, because... This creeps into me as well. If your first impulse when things go wrong is to work harder, it's possible you don't actually believe that Jesus will help. If your first impulse is to take matters into your own hands, I have to double my efforts. It's highly possible that maybe you don't actually believe Jesus is actually going to help with this. If you feel overwhelmed, and who hasn't felt overwhelmed this past couple of months. And if worry is a constant companion, these could be diagnostics in which God is saying to you, like he said to the blind men, Jesus is staring at you saying, do you trust that I can help with this, that I can do something about this, that I'm the Messiah, God's son come to earth with all power and authority given to me? That's hard. And for those of you who are chronic worriers or feel overwhelmed, sometimes I think the reason that we feel so overwhelmed is we actually don't believe that God's going to help. That we're on our own in this universe. You're not. You're not. Jesus didn't leave heaven and come to earth and die on a cross so you could feel abandoned by God. That's not what's going on here. But then the second question is, it's sometimes in some ways worse, or more penetrating, or more difficult. And that's in the second group of blind men. He asked them, what do you want me to do for you? Which seems like a stupid question. Um, we're blind. <laughs> but Jesus is asking this question because I think he asks it of all of us. What are you actually after? What's driving your life? And are you inviting me into that? See, sometimes when Jesus asks us these questions, this is about our internal desires. And sometimes we're actually even afraid to share those things with God. Or put another way, we don't examine, we don't even know ourselves. Why are you going so hard after that thing? 
I don't know. Well, wouldn't it be good to examine that? Imagine if Jesus asked the Pharisees, what do you want me to do? What would they say? We want you to go away so we can have power. We want to kill you. Okay, can we talk about that? Why is that, Pharisees? Why do you want me dead? Why are you so mad? Why are you so upset? Again, sometimes when we get so upset, that's an invitation for Jesus to say, why are you so upset? What do you want? What's, what's, what's going on? What are you afraid of losing? What's going on here? Sometimes it's because we have malformed desires. Sometimes it's because something's wrong. We think that we're going after a thing that's actually not going to provide us the thing that we think that we want. This happens all the time. This happens to me. This happens to you. So it's an invitation of Jesus to say, can we talk about what your life is about, what you're going after, what you're struggling for? But then there's another question there underneath that also, and that's our propensity to actually hide what we actually want from God. We talked about this at our summer recharge conference. Joshua Ryan Butler came and he spoke about hiding from God in prayer. And I thought, that's stupid. And then he started talking. I was like, oh man, like I do that. I feel like internally I have to present myself to God really well. And I actually, weirdly enough, even I, I feel like, well, I have to clean myself up before I can actually pray. Instead of saying, Lord, I'm completely messed up. I'm honest about the broken. Instead of being honest about the brokenness, I'm, I, I feel like I have to like, because um, it's embarrassing, right? It's shameful. I know I, I know I should have my stuff together better, but I don't. So I hide from God. <laughs> Does this make sense? No, this is what I do. This is, and so in the afterward this past week, afterwards our podcast that's part of our Spotify playlist um, for Westgate teaching, I, we, we just played the, the sessions from Joshua Ryan Butler about not hiding from God. And it's so helpful. It was so helpful. If we believe that we have to present a cleaned up version of ourselves before God, if we struggle with feelings of deep shame, or, and for those engineers and high-functioning folk out, of which there are many, if you're always staying in the problem-solving mode, and you stay in your head, and you're never actually accessing why you feel what you feel. I have a friend, very successful business, he said, I know I'm not okay when I'm just in problem-solving mode with the things of my life, and I'm never actually honest about what I'm feeling because I feel like I'm afraid of my emotions, and I lock them over there, and they're not trustworthy, and I'll, I'll be over here instead of entering into the invitation of God to say, why do you feel what you feel? What's going on? So there's this, there's, I don't know who I am. I don't know why I'm reacting the way that I am. So either we don't know who we are or we're afraid that if we actually are who we are in front of God, that he's going to be angry or disappointed or shocked, like he wasn't there the whole time, like he doesn't see. I don't know. But regardless, here's what we do see. We see this again and again. We see that the people who come to Jesus who are desperate, the blind folk, the broken folk, the people who are desperate for him, and they bring their whole brokenness before Jesus, he interacts with them in ways that transform and change their whole life. I think in some ways Matthew is saying, be like the blind people who come with desperation 
full knowledge of their brokenness and throw themselves on the mercy of God. And in the process, they find that God responds every time with life. That's incredible. Son of David, have mercy on us. What's his response? Yes. Let's be like that. Let's be like those people. That's, I think, the invitation. Bring our whole brokenness in front of God. Knowing that Jesus has already shown us when people come desperate and broken and they cry out, Son of David, have mercy on us, that Jesus' response is always yes. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the story that Matthew tells of the King, the Messiah, coming to earth. And we do thank you that um, we get a picture of what it looks like to see you clearly. And help us be people that see you clearly, who want to see you clearly, who are desperate to see you clearly. Help us not hide from you. And help us be people who actually see you at work, even now in our lives, in our world. Help us not miss you. And help us bring our whole selves before you. I pray that as we do this, that we would find you and our lives would be transformed. And that maybe even we'd be like those blind men who just could not stop talking about the change that you had done in their lives. We have met the Christ, the one who came from heaven to earth, God on earth in human form, in flesh and bone, sent to heal, proclaim the kingdom, and to teach us about what God's really like. I pray that as we encounter you, that we would be changed just like those stories of the people who were transformed, and I pray that we would have the courage to bring our whole selves to you. Amen.